Morning, friends. Let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, as we continue this early portion of Jesus' ministry. I just, I just feel like I need to make a confession to you this morning. I have a, find a secret joy in men competing to read the scripture passage. And uh, it's always interesting when two guys start at the same time, and I'm wondering who's going to prevail, but somebody always does. Somebody starts, and somebody across the room reads, it's okay. Just think of the pleasure you're giving me. But it is a good reminder that uh, this is what God has called us to do, men, uh, to lead. Uh, and there's no way around it. Uh, there's, no, um, there's no denying it. We are called to lead in, in the church and in our homes. That doesn't mean domineering and um, lording it over the people uh, in our families, but it does mean we're called to lead. So thank you. Our passage today is... Mark three twenty through thirty five, uh, three twenty through thirty five, and I do have good hope that we will be able to get through this entire passage. I heard a scoff of questioning whether I could do it or not from this side over here. Let's read our passage together before we begin. The Word of God. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Strong man then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and brothers came and standing outside they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of God. May he uh, bless what we've just read. Let's, let's pause for, uh, ask for his help again. 
Jesus, do quicken us with your spirit. Uh, give us grace to see and hear your truth. Father, I pray that you would uh, just free us from distractions this morning, from our cell phones, from thoughts about lunch to thoughts about the week. Free us to clear our minds and, and focus on what your word has to tell us today and strengthen me as I do this. Please, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This gentleman uh, is the man who gave us the Chronicles of Narnia, which I hope many of you have enjoyed reading as uh, my family has. He also wrote a very important book called Mere Christianity. Uh, C.S. Lewis in this uh, book, uh, uh, kind of an apologetic book, described three different responses to Jesus. And in this well-known quote from that book, he says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really silly thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we mustn't say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said wouldn't be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But don't let us come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that open to us. He didn't intend to. There are really only three valid responses to Jesus, Lewis says in that quote I just read. Based on the things that Jesus said and did, he's either a lunatic on the same level as the man who says he's a poached egg, according to Lewis, or he's the devil himself attempting to deceive as many people as he can, or he is who he said he was, Lord and God. He's either the Lord, a liar, or a lunatic. Which was your choice? Which is your choice? Because those are really the only three valid choices you can make. Lord, liar, or lunatic. These happen to be the same three responses to Jesus that we find in our passage today. To begin with, there's the response of Jesus' family who thinks he's a lunatic. Jesus' mother and brothers believe that he's lost his mind. Again, verse 20 says, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. Last Sunday we saw Jesus uh, near the Sea of Galilee here, up to the north of Israel, um, uh, probably on this spot that we described as the Horns of Hatton. That's the high point uh, just to the northwest of the Sea of Galilee. It's probably somewhere up in this region. And this is a photo of that looking onto the sea. Whoop. Yeah, wrong button. Here's the Sea of Galilee back here, and we're on the northwest corner looking kind of... Uh, 
uh, east, southeast, I reckon. And uh, he, a, a huge spot, a crowd from all over this region um, had gathered to see him perform miracles and cast out demons. Again, here's the Sea of Galilee up to the north. But scripture says, Mark tells us that from all over the, over the region that people had gathered to hear him. But now Jesus has left that area and gone back to his home base in Capernaum, which is right here on the northern uh, edge of the Sea of Galilee. And having returned, uh, a crowd gathers again. This home that he's at is probably the home of Peter and Andrew. We saw uh, this home in chapter 1 where Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law from a fever. He returns to his home base. The crowd again gathers, obviously a much smaller crowd this time than the previous one. But it's still so large and intrusive uh, that Jesus and the twelve aren't even able to eat. The, the news of these events reached Jesus' family uh, back in Nazareth. Here again is... Again, the wrong button. Here again is Capernaum, and here's his hometown over here. If you can see, I'll get out of the way for you. Uh, and here's where his hometown is, Nazareth. This is where his family is journeying. Perhaps someone who heard Jesus on the horns of Hatton made his way back home and reported to Jesus' mother and brothers. Something along those lines must have happened because his family decides to pay him a visit here in verse 21. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying he is out of his mind. Uh, uh, please note that this is not a friendly visit to Jesus. They're not visiting, um, you know, their son away at college and there to take him out to lunch. Uh, they have come to take him by force. Uh, the word seize indicates that. They've come to get a hold of him. In some contexts, this word means to arrest someone. This is not a friendly visit at all. This is an intervention. Uh, Jesus has taken leave of his senses, they think. This is the same response that we saw at the end of our scripture reading today, that wonderful passage about Jesus, the good shepherd. We often don't see uh, the, the response to that. And at the very end of our scripture reading, we read this. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he is a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Paul got the same treatment as he makes his defense uh, basically telling uh, Roman officials how, what he was doing as, as an apostle, making his defense, describing the vision on the road to the Damascus. And a, a ruler named Festus said this, as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Dr. R.C. Sproul points out um, that those who follow a sports team with excitement and declare their allegiance through bumper stickers and t-shirts, they're referred to as fans. And fans has a, a basically a, a positive uh, meaning, or, or at least it's neutral. But if you show the same kind of enthusiasm for following Jesus Christ, you'll be referred to not as a fan, but a fanatic. 
And that's got a negative ring to it. Uh, listen to your team's podcast or read the scattering report every day and you're fine. But read the Bible every day and suddenly you're a religious fanatic. So Dr. Sproul concludes, anyone who takes his faith seriously and speaks on behalf of Christ and his kingdom will be accused of fanaticism at some point. And this is what Jesus' family uh, must have been thinking. Well, he, he's carried things too far. He's, he's gone nuts. He's out of his mind. And I wonder if that might be your response to Jesus. Maybe in not those words, you would never dare utter those words. Perhaps it's something like this. I'm all for attending church once in a while, but let's not take it too far. We really don't need to go every week, do we? Or maybe it's this. I get plenty of the Bible on Sunday, and I have a calendar with a new verse on it every day. But come on, read the Bible every day? Are you nuts? Or maybe even this. I go to church. I, I give to the church. But surrender my life to Jesus Christ? Devote my life to him? Put him before my family? Put him before everything else that is way over the top? Have you ever said something like that? Man, that's just too far. That's nuts. If that is one of your responses, my fear for you is you've been infected with American religion. I fear you've been infected with American religion, but not with Christ. And this mild case of religion will leave you on the, in the same place as his family was, on the outside looking in. Look down to verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. So there's this response, first of all, from his family, who think that Jesus has gone way over the top. There's another response, and the second response comes from the scribes who think he's a flat-out liar. Or do you see us Lewis's words? They believe he's the very devil of hell. I want to mention four things about this response. The first thing I want you to see is who it comes from. It comes from this group called the scribes. Um, the scribes are from Jerusalem. Well, let me read verse 22 to begin with. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons. He casts out the demons. It, since they're from Jerusalem, it is very likely this is organized opposition to Jesus. The Jewish Supreme Court in, in, in Jerusalem has heard enough, and these men are sent out on an official basis. Uh, the Sanhedrin has sent them to, to investigate, maybe to put an end to it. And this visit is not friendly either. It, verse 22 says, and they were saying he is possessed by Beelzebul. In other words, it's not just a passing comment from the scribes. It's a sustained attack on Jesus' character. Uh, 
you know what this is like. We just went through a round of this before the last election uh, on, on TV and, and on the radio. Every year we hear one guy launch a smear campaign against the other political candidate, and they launch them at each other. And this is something like that. The scribe's smear campaign accused Jesus of, of being possessed by Beelzebul. Some of your versions might say Beelzebub, but Beelzebul is probably correct. And it means something like Baal is prince. And the next phrase refers to Beelzebul as the prince of demons. We know that is Satan. And so the scribes, they acknowledge that Jesus has power, that he can cast out demons, but his power to do this, they say, is not from God, it's from Satan. They're calling him a liar who's out to deceive people. He's not from God or else he'd be more like us, they think. He has power, we admit it, but it's satanic, not divine power. This is the smear campaign launched by the scribes. Next, I want you to see the parables. How he responds. These are not lengthy parables. These are are short figures of speech, figurative language that he uses. And this begins in verse 23. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Jesus compares Satan's realm to, uh, to a kingdom or a dynasty, a house. And if either of these started fighting itself, that kingdom, that dynasty wouldn't last. It would crumble. Jesus concludes in verse 26, and if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. And he's saying in the same way, if Satan started fighting himself, his realm would end. And through these short figures of speech, Jesus shows the scribes just how ridiculous their theory is. I like the way Uh, This Bible scholar summed it up. It's hard to believe that even the teachers of the law thought this accusation was true. That is why Jesus' rebuke was so severe. He showed how stupid the suggestion of a civil war within Satan himself is. I think I just like that so much because he used the word stupid in his sentence. I mean, if Jesus were talking in our day, he would say, really? Really? Well, so he replies in parables. This scholar uh, goes on in the same quote to say, Jesus' expulsion of demons meant a victory over the enemy, not siding with them. And that's what Jesus says here in verse 27. He says, but no one can enter a strong man's house and and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. The strong man refers to Satan, uh, that his goods are being plundered, that, that 
the people taken captive by him are being set free from demon possession indicates that there is someone stronger than him. The defeat of the strong man indicates that there is a stronger man, someone who is bringing that kingdom to an end. And I, I, I want you to think about what Jesus said at the beginning of his ministry, the very beginning, he came out with these words, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Uh, the kingdom of God has arrived in the person of Christ and it is pushing out Satan's kingdom. And Jesus would eventually defeat Satan on the cross. I, I, and I do mean defeat him on the cross. Colossians 2.15 says he disarmed the rulers and authorities. The word disarmed means he stripped them of their power. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, those are demonic forces, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Or the verse could say, or in it, meaning in the cross. He triumphed over them in it, in the cross. Uh, Satan was defeated. And someone has put it up, put it like this, the strong man has already been conquered and tied up. The battle has been fought and won, and now there are only mopping up operations. And so Jesus is telling these scribes, you guys have it all wrong that I'm freeing people from demon possession does not mean that I'm collaborating with Satan. It means that I'm defeating him and that he is coming to an end. I'm the stronger man and I'm binding him and putting him away. Well, moving on from from identifying himself as the stronger man who is binding Satan. He goes on to give them a very stern warning about the slander. Uh, he warns the scribes uh, that the slanderous things they've said have eternal consequences. Notice verse 28. Truly, I say to you, and truly gives it the what... Uh, it's kind of like the phrase I use, I'm serious as a heart attack. I begin my sentences with sometimes. Um, truly, I am drop dead serious about this. This is a solemn thing. I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, in whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. There are two things we need to define here. And I'm out of room on the bottom, so let me use another slide. Two things we need to define. The first is what blasphemy is. It essentially means slander, but usually it means slander aimed at God. Um, 
it's speaking ill of God, insulting the character of God through either what we say or write. It's insulting who he is and dragging his name through the mud. R.C. Sproul again uh, defines it like this. Blasphemy then involves speaking a word against God. It is a verbal sin, one that is committed with the mouth or the pen. It is desecration of the holy character of God. It can involve insulting him, excuse me, mocking him or dishonoring him. In a sense, it's the opposite of praise. Even casually using the name of God by saying, oh my God, as so many do, constitutes blasphemy. There's a good example of this in one of my favorite movies, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade as Indiana and his father are escaping from the castle on the motorcycles. Has anybody seen this movie? Do we? Okay, and Indiana curses using the name of Christ, and his father slaps his mouth. That's for blasphemy. That's for blasphemy. This is similar to what we're talking about. That's what blasphemy is. It's insulting the character of God. But but it's more specific. We need to go on next and define this thing called uh, what's referred to as the unpardonable sin uh, that Jesus identifies as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's been called the unpardonable sin, the unforgivable sin. And it's said of this that it is one of the most enigmatic, debated, and misunderstood sayings of Jesus' ministry. There's been a lot of discussion about the, the unpardonable sin. Um, many Christians have walked into their pastor's offices convinced that they've committed the unpardonable sin. So, so what is this? What, what is the unpardonable sin? Well, the MacArthur Study Bible says it's the deliberate rejection of that which the scribes knew to be of God. In other words, they stubbornly and consistently hardened themselves to the truth about Jesus given by the Holy Spirit. And people who continue to, re to reject the Spirit's witness to Christ, he says, are beyond forgiveness. Here's a little more fuller word, and this comes from the ESV study Bible. Listen to this. I, I, I hope this is helpful. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, that is, the persistent and unrepentant resistance against the work of the Holy Spirit and his message concerning Jesus will not be forgiven. The person who persists in hardening his heart against God, against the work of the Holy Spirit, and against the provision of Christ as Savior is outside the reach of God's provision for forgiveness and salvation. Christians often worry that they've committed this sin, but such a concern is itself evidence of an openness to the work of the Spirit. Well, if you didn't get either of those, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is refusing to believe the Holy Spirit's testimony about Christ. It is the ongoing rejection of the Spirit's witness to Jesus as Savior and Lord 
This, Jesus says, cannot be forgiven. It is those who uh, know that it's true, but who refuse to believe what the Spirit is saying about Christ. And so the conclusion is, if you know Christ as your Savior and Lord, you have not committed the unpardonable sin, which is a great thing. So this is, this is the response from the scribes. This second response, Jesus isn't divine. He isn't from God. He'd be like us if he was from God. Isn't that ironic? It's, he's from the devil. He's a liar. Well, there's one last response. His family thought he was a lunatic. He'd gone off the deep end. The scribes thought he was a liar. And the third response comes from his disciples. And those are the ones who believe that he's the Lord. That he's exactly who he says he is. He is Lord and God. And Mark in this response, is going to contrast two groups of people for us. And the first group of people that he mentions are outsiders. They are not only outside the house, they are outside the faith at this point. I say at this point because they will later on become insiders. This is a group we've seen before. Uh, it's Jesus' family that has set out from Nazareth back in verse 21 to take hold of him. And in the intervening time, while he's been talking to the scribes, they finally arrive from, uh, at Capernaum. And verse 31 says, And his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. It's interesting, even Mary is apparently confused somewhat. Or at the very least, she thinks Jesus has gone way too far in what she has said to the Pharisees and, and the rulers. At any rate, she arrives with Jesus' four brothers, who Mark will later identify as James, Joses, Judas, and Simon, uh, who will go on to uh, greater fame in the New Testament church. Two of them will. Jesus also had at least two sisters who apparently did not make the trip. And this just demonstrates to us that after Jesus, the firstborn, was born in Bethlehem, Joseph and Mary went on to have other children. And this is a kind of a, it's not a kind of, it is a contradiction uh, against the Roman Catholic Church's doctrine of Mary being a perpetual virgin. At any rate, these arrive to take Jesus in hand. This is where they're going to make their intervention or, or try to take him into custody for his own good uh, because he's out of his, he's taken leave of his senses. But notice the position in relation to Jesus, both in this verse and in the next. They are standing outside. These people know Jesus well. They know Jesus perhaps better than anyone seated in that room. And yet they remain outside the circle of those who acknowledge his lordship. 
And so do all who resist surrendering to the Lordship of Christ. They remain outside the circle of his followers. Could this be you? Could this be you? Maybe you too know all about Jesus like his brothers did. Maybe you've been attending church so long you could even say you grew up with Jesus much like his brothers. But knowledge about Jesus is not enough. Knowledge about Jesus will leave you on the outside looking in. The most you could say about yourself, friend, is, is that you're what's called an almost Christian. Following Jesus Christ involves personal trust in his death on the cross. Relying on his death as the payment for your sin. Following Jesus involves laying down your life and surrender to him as Savior and Lord. These are the outsiders, at least they're outsiders at this point in the story. But Mark goes on and obviously he's going to talk about insiders. The other group that he go, goes on to describe, these are those who respond to Jesus as Lord. And Mark uh, describes two characteristics of insiders here. First, simply put, they are around him. I mean, literally, they are around him, but also in a spiritual sense, they are with him. Verse 32 says, And the crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and brothers? And looking about it, those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. A rather shocking statement to make with his mother standing outside. You want to know who my real relatives are? Uh, they're sitting around me right now. This is the same characteristic of a disciple we saw last Sunday, uh, up in chapter 2, verse 14. Uh, Jesus said, uh, or Mark says, and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach. And here we see the same characteristic of people who are with him. And sitting under his teaching and being instructed and taught as disciples. These are those who've responded to him as Lord. They are in close fellowship with him. These are in daily communion with Christ. I want you to hear Jesus described this kind of communion from a familiar passage in John 15. And Jesus describes this being with him like this. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. 
No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I'm the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, like these scribes, it's like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. It will be given you. These are, these are those that are inside, not just inside the house. They are there with him. They've responded to him as Lord and sitting in his feet, they remain close to him and they stay in, in fellowship with him to begin with. And the second characteristic of these insiders is that they do the will of God. They do the will of God. Look at verse 34 again. And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Those who respond to him as Lord, those who repent and believe, those on the inside are those who keep his commandments. Insiders are those who obey Christ's commands. I hope that's not odd. I mean... We wouldn't think of a follower of Jesus as someone who doesn't obey Christ's commands, would we? But yet we, we run into those kinds of people all the time. But listen to what Jesus' words are in, in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. And so what Jesus is saying here is confessing Christ is worthless without obedience to him. It's not a popular message in our culture. And I think one that people have stopped saying. Confessing Christ is worthless without obedience to him. Years ago, a pastor named Matthew Mead described the kind of obedience Christ is asking for in a book he wrote called The Almost Christian Discovered. And he said, there's some old language, I'll try to uh, edit it as I go. He that is altogether a Christian, meaning a, someone who... Uh, has given himself to Christ as Lord. He that is altogether a Christian is comprehensive in his obedience. He does not obey one command and neglect another, do one duty and, and ignore another, but he has respect to all the commands. He tries to leave every, leave every sin and, and love every duty. The almost Christian fails in this. His obedience is partial and piecemeal. piecemeal. 
If he obeys one command, he breaks another. The duties that least obstruct his lust, he is all for. But those that do obstruct his lust, he ignores. It's probably a reason why you haven't heard of the book, The Almost Christian Discovered. It would be a little painful to read. Now, it's not saying that this person is perfect. He's not saying that they perform sinless obedience. What he is saying is they're consistently obedient. If you watch their life, they show a pattern of consistent obedience versus the almost Christian who is like this. Those on the inside are those who do the will of God. This is the third response to Jesus Christ. Boy, this is a probing message. A probing message. This response, as Lewis said, is to fall at his feet and call him Lord. And God, these people are around him and they do his will. Well, as Lewis said, he there really are only three valid responses to Jesus. He, he doesn't ever give us the response of, uh, uh, of give us room to call him a great moral teacher because he said, I and the Father are one. He claimed to be God. And that's why Lewis said, don't let us come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that open to us. He didn't intend to. We have these three valid responses. He's either the Lord, or he's a liar, or he's a lunatic. And what we've seen today, his, his family, uh, at least at this point, thought he was a lunatic. The scribes thought he was a liar, thought he was the very devil of hell. But his disciples, they trust him as the Lord. And they remain in him and they do his will. So let me conclude with, I think, three applications. One is to ask you again, could you be an almost Christian? Could you be? I mean, like his brothers, you, you know Jesus? You've practically grown up in the church and but you think there is a point of going too far with following Christ. And man, I, you know, Pastor Rob, I think you're a freak. And anybody, well, that's a given. <laughs> anybody who's so gung-ho about following Christ is a fanatic. Not for me, no. So you go ahead and be a fanatic about, oh, what I dare say, Georgia football, or, I have to be fair, Auburn football, or Georgia Tech football, or, or a hobby, or your children. You know, I'm com that's first for me. Christ, no, I can't do that, man. 
Are you an almost Christian? The second application is, have you responded to Jesus as Lord? Are you around him, with him, fellowshipping with him? And by that I mean, it's, it's how we do it in this day when he's no longer physically present. We spend time with him in his word. I know I'm saying that all the time. I sound like a broken record. Well, I'm sorry. We are supposed to take in his word. And it's that's inconvenient for you, then you really, really can't follow him as Lord. But it, it says we're with him. And in communion with him. It's just simple math. Our, Pastor Ram, I have days when I don't feel like doing that. I have days when I don't feel like doing that, okay? Let's get that off the table. Pastor Ram, it's hard to pray sometimes. It's hard for me to pray sometimes. Are you around him? Then the other characteristic, do you, do you do the will of God? Not selectively or half-heartedly, but wholeheartedly and choose some and neglect some others? Are you consistently, over time, following Christ? Is the, is the trend of your life a, a one of obedience? We have bad days. We know. We, f- we fall, yes. But over time, are you... Consistently, could we look back over your life and say, yes, this person has been consistent in his obedience to Christ. And then one last application. Someone around you thinks Jesus is a great moral teacher. And I would simply talk to that person in your circle of influence with what Lewis said and what this passage demonstrates. Uh -uh. He never claimed to be a great moral teacher. He never claimed to be a great moral teacher. He said, I am God. And if he said, I am God, that leaves us these three choices. He's, He's either out of his mind, he is a liar, or he is the Lord. And the evidence of his word stacks up, guess where? that he is the Lord God. I was trying to think how my father would end a sermon like this. And most likely my dad would, would, would have uh, us sing something like this at the very end. I'm not going to sing it for you. Um, but he would have us uh, sing a verse in, in chorus of, of a song called I Surrender All. And The words go like this, all to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live, just the things we've talked about. In the chorus, I surrender all, I surrender all, all to thee my blessed Savior, I surrender all. And then he would dismiss us with prayer. Is this something you've said? I surrender all. You've laid down your life as a living sacrifice to Jesus Christ.
All to him I freely give. Wow. I surrender all. Heavenly Father, thank you for these three responses. We can only respond correctly if your spirit moves in us. If your spirit changes our hearts, if your spirit changes our will so that we want to and will surrender, please do this in us, Father. If there's anyone sitting in front of me who's an almost Christian, oh God, change their heart. Let them see your son Jesus as the pearl of great price, as infinite treasure, as ultimately desirable. Make Jesus sweet to our taste, Father, that we could respond as his disciples did here and stay with him and be with him and do your will. Please work this response in us, Father, we pray in your Son's name. Amen.